Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you so much for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeffrey Gannon, how are you doing over there? I'm doing very well, Andrew. I'm also going to ask you how you are doing because last time I was on, there was some debate about whether I asked you that question or not. Did you or not? I don't even remember. I did ask you and you accused me of not asking No, you, you. did. You never do. I'm, but I am doing great. What's your middle name? Harvey. Harvey. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Harvey Gannon. Correct. Mine's Mitchell Oh, with one L. Oh. Funny story. I didn't even know it was spelled like that until I got my eighth grade like diploma or whatever when I graduated from uh-huh. eighth grade. And it they spelled Mitchell with one L. And I asked my mom, like, why did they spell it? That's, they spelled this incorrectly. And she's like, no, that's how we spelled your middle name. Oh. Didn't know that until I was in eighth grade. Wow. Can you believe it? Crazy. So today we are going to be talking about some stuff that people asked of us. Mm-hmm. And obviously we get tons of emails all the time from people that have some questions for us. And I also put out a tweet um, asking for a call for questions. So if you do want to potentially ask us a question through Twitter in the future, feel free yep. to follow us at, at Focused Compound. Right. And that's Andrew. Yeah, that is me. And, and also my email address, which is where we'll be getting a lot of these questions from, is... Um, uh, Jeff at GannonOnInvesting.com. <laughs> no, it's actually GannonOnInvesting uh, at, at gmail.com. gmail.com. That's correct. GannonOnInvesting at gmail.com. Correct. That's that, the one that we got these at. Yes. Yep. Yes. So, ready for this? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do it. So, somebody sent you an email. Um, we'll call him Max, even though his real name is Richard. Okay. <laughs> Saying, I recently heard that you have sold all your personal holdings and that you have... Pro- and that you have probably invested the proceeds alongside with your managed account clients. I am wondering why you made such a drastic change to your investing style. I've been following you for six or seven years, and and this does not fit the picture I have built of your lifestyle. I thought that you enjoyed managing only your own money and buying different sorts of companies than those in the managed accounts. So what changed? And then he, uh, he gave a couple good sentences of saying that he wishes us the best. Okay, good. Thank so you. there's the question. So thank you very much, Richard. Yes. Um... Let's see. Uh, I guess we could talk about sort of conflict of interest or whatever. The issue there is really that um, there's a lot of different things people could talk about about conflict of interest. We know people who run different um, money professionally, things like that. But the biggest issue really in the day-to-day of of how well you manage money for other people is how you spend your time looking at ideas and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so the issue here is really – um, if we choose to have managed accounts that are on focused on a specific thing, mm-hmm. so in this case we have certain uh, criteria about basically overlooked stocks, then if I spend any of my time um, looking at things from our personal portfolio that are totally different, um, that's time that, that isn't being used looking for stuff for the managed accounts. And so that's the basic answer of it. Was to pretty much dedicate all of our time to the managed accounts. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people, when I talk about that, think, um, I mean, that being invested alongside um, clients is the objective there. And, and that's that's fine. That's good. But that's not really uh, the reason for doing it. The reason for doing it is that it's if I didn't do that, then I'd always have this issue of um, 
should I spend any time looking at stocks that I won't buy for the managed accounts? Yeah. And that's sort of like the um, Warren Buffett sort of issue mm-hmm. that people talk about, like about why did he buy, you know, this REIT or this whatever thing or this bank. But didn't or, buy it for Berkshire. Right. And he, it's just that he will only buy things personally, which he would never buy for Berkshire. And that's sort of the simplest way of thinking about it. Because he's not going to spend a lot of time worrying about the one percent of his his uh, money that isn't invested in in Berkshire, basically. Yeah, yeah, and I think so that's a simple answer. Um, as far as the issue of that the manager accounts are invested in different things than I was interested in, um, I can see how you would think that because I think a lot of people when we explain what the manager accounts are, think it's like just microcap stocks, um, and so sort of net nets or something like that. But that's not all that it's invested in. Um, the biggest position that I had in the in my personal portfolio before starting the manager accounts is also the biggest position yeah. in the manager accounts. Um, I'm looking at something now which I had owned previously. I could certainly see it's possible the manager accounts could um, sometime fairly soon be invested. You know, the majority of the manager accounts could be in stuff that the majority of my personal money was in a year ago or something. So there's a lot more overlap than people think. And I think the managed accounts have more, um, I guess you'd say like wide moat stocks or quality stocks than people might think mm-hmm. just because they may be small or spinoffs or something like that. So we should probably go over what the criteria are for the managed accounts, which is basically overlook stocks. Yep. So they have to be, um, either very small stocks or some sort of spinoff. Yeah, we classify as what? Illiquid, spinoff, right. microcaps, um, mm-hmm. net nets, near net nets, stocks Correct. emerging from bankruptcy. Yep. Um, Reverse mergers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. A sort of a subset of stocks that tend to get, for one reason or another, overlooked by a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Something that way. Um, and so I guess the one exception I could think of is like um, a stock that I owned previously would be Frost, mm-hmm. right? So Frost is like a, I don't know, several billion dollar market cap uh, bank stock, which has never been a spinoff or anything like that. And so, yeah, that's right. I couldn't own that stock with the criteria that we have. Mm-hmm. We should also probably talk a little bit about why we have those criteria. Yeah, I was going to say, because a lot of yeah. people have asked us, what if, for example, the markets crash tomorrow? Are you going to go sure. in, you know, invest in large cap land or whatever? No. Yeah. And the answer is no. Yeah. Um, and that's a decision that I made because, look, managed accounts have fees associated with them. Um, people want them to outperform the S&P 500 usually. And this wasn't made for a marketing decision. I would think that um, you know better from talking to clients. But in general, I would say that people I've talked to have been uh, you know, at least as eager to say, well, just invest in anything you want. Yeah. I don't really care that it has to be the specific stuff. It's not like we're saying we run a microcap value fund or something. It's mm-hmm. not the style box that people want it to fit into. Yeah, But we picked it because I felt um, – there's just too many funds doing the, okay, we'll buy anything, you know, whatever that might be. And uh, we had to have a particular focus that way. I think, I think it's better just to yeah, specialize a little bit more, focus yeah. in the space. Yeah. And so basically what we're focused on is something that might be mispriced for a reason that doesn't have to do with the quality of the company. Mm-hmm. So some sort of event has happened at some point in the past. Uh, it just doesn't have as much interest as stocks generally do. So it could be very illiquid, it could be very small, or it could be a spinoff or some other sort of thing where the um, stock is just not in uh, the hands of as many people. That just it, a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah. That's exactly. what I sort of describe it as. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. How do you guard against attachment bias? I often hear both you and Jeff reference the same stocks in the podcast. He said, I also do the same on Twitter. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I talked to someone once where I said that I tried to um, encourage sort of that attachment bias. 
um, because I think it's it's not a bad thing to um, focus more on holding on to what you know a lot about mm-hmm. and to only buy things that you already know a lot about than to get in, um, than to take an action regarding some stock that you've just learned about mm-hmm. and you feel that you know as much about. Sure. And so it's very common for me. I mean, this is a little unusual because I think we talked about this in um, the last podcast that I was on um, where I said, you know, I know a lot about stocks that I don't own. And I talk a lot about stocks that I've never owned. And that you would never even buy. Yeah, that I haven't bought. And um, I think that's true compared to most people. That's true. Uh, and I do put a lot of weight on the idea. I sort of think about stocks generally with a checklist of about four things. Uh, I did a newsletter, Singular Diligence, which is on all the past issues are on the website and everything. And that had basically nine or ten different things that we talked about. But really it comes down to four things for me, which is, um, is this stock cheap enough? Is the stock safe enough? Is the stock good enough? Those are the three. But the overarching one about all of that is, um, do I understand this well enough? So do I understand the cheapness of the stock well enough? Do I understand the quality of the stock well enough? And do I understand the safety of the stock well enough? Mm -hmm. And the biggest issue, I think, usually um, for the people that I talk to is actually um, the opposite of the attachment bias, which is the buying things that look better than what they know on the statistics alone but they don't know as much about it so they use like a screen yeah they sell the thing at seven times ebitda they know really well to buy the thing at five times ebitda they know nothing about Uh that's the big issue it's interesting too because we talk a lot about stocks on here where i feel like people sort of get the impression that we may potentially buy it like we've talked about that with klx sure energy services and uh right and which we should say when we're recording this so that people know, what's that? Of the the in terms of the price of that stock. Yeah, I mean it, this. So I don't even know what the price is, but I'm just saying like we talked about it a lot, and probably a lot of people got the impression that we were going to buy it. And correct, we, we didn't. And, and I did certainly did consider it at the point where it was at its lowest price, which is yeah. why I said we should um, talk about what timing it is. Yeah, sure. Let me because let um, it got down to a fairly low price. Let there. me pull out the Bloomberg. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. But it rose by twenty five or twenty seven percent or something in a single day. Yeah, mm-hmm. last week. Yeah, yeah, and when it had earnings, and so that brought up to a price where I wouldn't be as interested. But it's it, currently at twenty five dollars. Okay, and, and it might have been I don't know. 19, and it was down. What 19, was it down to? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. up like twenty five bucks a day because they had earnings. And then they they gave gave guidance, guidance, yeah. yeah. And I was certainly interested in the possibility of owning that stock at, say, 19 or something around there. Yeah. At a price, you know, I looked at it at a price where I thought, okay, if this is going to be, say, let's, you know, I don't know, three times their uh, guided EBITDA. Um, And their guidance wasn't different than what I expected. But um, it was something that we've certainly looked at, but it was never at a price that I would um, buy it at that way. It depends because people ask me about something like BWX Technologies, right? And BWX Technologies is a stock I'd probably be willing to own at three times the price of KLX. Sure. Because of the degree of certainty. Not because KLX may not have that much um, upside or something, but I just don't know. Whereas with BWX Technologies, I do know. So KLX is a stock we talk about, and if it gets down to a price that's really low, we would be willing to buy it. Because there's a certain level of uh, certainty that you have. Um, and if a stock is at three times EBITDA or three times what I think it's EBITDA will be, then I'd be willing to say, okay, well, I don't think I'm off by 50% here with this stock. Um, but my degree of certainty with how well I can judge the earning power of KLX is probably five times worse 
than with BWX technologies. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is I'd be as sure of being able to predict the value of BWX within a 10% range, right, of intrinsic value as I would with 50% with KLX. Sure. So although we talk about KLX, it's more because there might be a mispricing. And the stock moved a lot since it was um, spun off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Alrighty, next question. I'm an enthusiastic follower from Israel. Hello. Back from the days before Focus Compounding. I love reading your writings inspired by your sometimes unconformist way of thinking. I have a question regarding KEWL, which is a stock that we own for the manager accounts mm-hmm. and has been written up by you on the website. Correct. It says, do you have any thoughts on the last few months drop in the stock price? Is it because of the new board member's execution? In your write-up, I saw that you only value the Timberland at $102 per share. How come the market punishes this company? Is the faith in the new directors that low? Dot, 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 question mark. I would be more than happy to hear your thoughts. Okay. And so for a lot of people listening, what's the stock trading at? Maybe like $76 per share? I was going to say 74 yeah, or something. It, I didn't check it today. Since the new, everything that's been going on within the company, the mm-hmm. stock has sold off. Yeah. Correct. And so I wrote it up. Um, he had mentioned there that I said that it was only worth, I guess, $102 a share or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say that's not true, but if you read my um, write-up carefully, I would say that it's not that I said it was worth $102 a share. It's that I said, let me do something that I often do, which is, okay, I'm looking at it from the perspective. I don't, I don't short stock, so I'm looking at it from the perspective of what would it take for me to go long this stock, right, to yeah. own this stock. So once I have that sort of hypothesis of, okay, this stock is undervalued, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take every possible sort of um, thing where you could take it one way or another, each data point that could go one way or the other in terms of how you judge it. And I'm going to um, assess it in the way that um, is less favorable to the position that I'm sort of um, uh, looking at. Mm -hmm. So I said... I didn't see a way that it was worth much less than $102 a share, basically. Someone else commenting on that, I think, suggested it might be worth about $117 a share. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't say that my $102 a share estimate was more correct than that $117. I wouldn't put more... Uh, I wouldn't say that it was clo- that my appraisal was closer. What I would say is that my appraisal was based more on going down a list and saying, okay, so they have mineral rights. Let's say that's worth nothing. Yeah. That's sort of what I did. I said it is worth nothing. There's a tax issue. I said there's probably ways that I think you could figure out to um, do this in a more tax-efficient way, but let's assume that they have to pay the full tax amount if they ever sell these things, stuff like that. So I went through and said, okay, let's take the more negative sort of way of looking at it. You and know. you backed it out that way. Right. I don't yeah. want to say worst case scenario because things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. But the more negative of the two reasonable ways of cutting the cake sort of in terms of how the, what the value be. Okay, the mineral rights are either worth $10 a share or nothing. Let's yeah. say nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. So it would be more accurate to say that I would say it could be worth $117 a share like some commenter there said or 102 But I certainly said I don't see how it could be worth a lot less than 102 and now you have a trading at 70-something. I don't know exactly what it is today, but... Mm-hmm. It's um, like 76 or in that area, yeah. Yeah, so are people negative on the um, new management? I'm not negative on the new management. I like what You think it could do. be because directors have sold maybe that aren't going to be sure, at the company? Sure, so the whole former board. Yeah. I don't know how much stock they owned, though. Sure. They were never compensated in stock. I know that. Mm-hmm. So as far as I know, it's one of the very few companies that had never... Com- uh, I don't know if they had never... Uh, it might be. As far as I was aware, there was no plan to compensate management using stock. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that the company had previously 
compensated the board with stock, so whatever stock the board owned I don't think was granted to them as options. So I don't think there was a lot of that. Um, it's a very illiquid stock. It certainly could have declined for that reason. I think more likely it just declined because, um, how it's, do I put this? Um, nothing happened. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it, it tends. I mean, it spikes a little bit sometimes when there's a release. So there were, I guess, t- at this point, two earnings releases under the current management. Um, we should say the board that took over it was a, a dissident board that took over. They had a major shareholder and they won. A vote and now they control the board um i like everything that they've said i think they put out one major press release and two earnings releases the major press release saying that a bunch of people um from the previous management had wanted to resign one of them would agree to stay on um and then the earnings releases were pretty basic um the one thing i guess really recently they said is that they wouldn't go through with a reconversion mm-hmm. um and i never really particularly liked the idea one way or the other of doing a reconversion yeah um it limits their options of what they can do with cash and stuff i never felt strongly about it one way or the other um i don't know why the stock declined a bunch that way we bought more yeah okay cool yeah we've bought more since Mm -hmm. it's declined yep um and that's just an issue of it had a price at one time that was probably pretty close to that 102 or so value that i said it probably wasn't worth less than yeah and then over time it declined and Mm -hmm. so we were willing to buy more of it yeah Exactly. Cool. This is an interesting question that I don't think we've gotten before. It says, my question isn't directly related to an investing concept, but I was wondering how do you use Excel? I know you said that you create a workbook for every company that you've analyzed deeply, and I was wondering what it looks like. I've also know that you have all your inputs of the financials that you put in there manually instead of exporting them because you adjust certain line items. But you've also said you create value line type sheets and have the company Z scores and F scores and coefficient variations and so forth. So I was wondering if you have formulas for that stuff or if you're just inputting all manually and what that looks like. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, F score and Z score, sure. There's formulas in there just because it's easier to do it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we could explain what an F score and a Z score are. A Z score isn't called an Altman Z score sometimes. It's, uh uses a weighted approach um, where different variables are worth different amounts. Um, It's sort of a way of um, working backwards to predict what a bankruptcy looks like. So they sort of look at what sorts of features bankruptcies have had in common, and then they weight certain of those things together. Um, And it sort of predicts bankruptcy going out a year out or something like that. Um, an F score is just a checklist of like, I guess, nine different items. A company can score between zero and nine and it's just a yes or no on each one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you could get that on guru focus as well. Yeah, certainly. That's just a quick way to do it. If you, if you want to just type in the ticker and you'll see it there on the homepage. Yeah. So as far as what I put in Excel, um, different things for different companies. I wouldn't say that's exactly the same. They did mention the coefficient of variation, yep. um, which is a measure of um, sort of the degree of wobble that there is in a margin, especially. And so the two things that I would look at is how much does return on capital vary, and then how much does um, the uh, like EBIT margin vary. Yeah, and um, that's probably the biggest number that yeah. I would look at. And the more important thing for me is ha- having a very very long series of numbers. And the reason for that is because if you can you know, predict their sales and then their margins, you could predict hopefully more accurately what it's worth, obviously. So when you're doing the coefficient variation, it helps with, I guess. Right. Because it's an issue of the degree of certainty, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, um, imagine you're doing some political polling or something and you looked at, um, your polls 
and you said, okay, well, how much were these polls off from the actual voting results? Yeah. Well, if they were off by 0.10 standard deviations, well, that's a very small number. But if they're off by 1.1 standard deviations, well, that's a very big number. Mm -hmm. And so if you had a very big number, then you have little faith in all those polls even combined and stuff. And if you had a very small number, then you have a ton of faith even in a very small number of polls. Yeah. And so you take a company like um, Costco. Costco, if you can predict what their sales will be, which isn't very difficult, um, you can have a very good idea of what their earnings will be next year. So if someone's telling you that they know what Costco is going to earn next year, you should be pretty confident in that. But if they're telling you what they think KLX will earn next year, you should not be at all confident in that. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with that number. So companies like Costco, ad agencies, things like that are very, very predictable. Um, And you can see them the coefficient of variation. Uh, But the numbers that I put in are specific to the companies. So... An example I can think of right away is NACO. Uh, I wrote that up on the website, and I think I had numbers from uh, 1991 through 2013. And I actually had data from after 2013, too, but I said that for various reasons it was uh, less reliable. They had, excuse me, they had some charges and things like that. Um, But they had pretty uh, stable numbers from 1991 through 2013. Mm -hmm. So what I did there is look mostly at their um profit per ton of coal and so the company talks about their um number of tons of coal that they produce each year and things like that and so working from that number you can get a lot of ideas about um how profitable they'll be and things like that and so that the big number there with that company was profit per ton um with different companies it would be different um i'm thinking we just talked about cool with cool it was the things having to do with the appraisal value of the timberland mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's not um, very standardized that way, like margins and things. What do margins matter that much? I just care about how many tons of coal you're going to have produced and, and how much operating profit you're going to have from that. At um, You pretty much take whatever is important to the investment thesis and I guess right. sort of model it out, if you will. Yeah. Or just way to sort of like keep track of it or yeah yeah and i've talked about banks or insurance companies or something banks i spent a lot of time talking about deposits and then what do they earn at different times yeah i'm not interested in what they earn in 2009 2009 had interest rates at basically nothing and no ability to lend it out and make money so who cares what a bank earned in 2009 sure but what did they earn on average in the 1990s that's an important number and Mm -hmm. that's what i'd like to know you know because the the next year let's take the 1980s and 1990s together well if you're looking at the company for the future, the next 10 years, you might own the stock. Well, that 20-year period in general might be really helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, So a lot of things, and especially things that are more helpful than the last year's number. Everyone has last year's number, and they have analyst expectations for next year. What we want is some number that's useful that isn't either of those two numbers. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about what the company's going to be look like in five years as well, too. Yeah, that's usually what I'm trying to do is yeah. figure out what it'll look like in five years and what I think it'll be worth. Mm-hmm. Cool. So on Twitter, I asked when I did the call for questions, I said it doesn't need to be investing related. Okay. So someone said, are you long or short the cash tag on Twitter? Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually my friend that asked this, and he's from chicago and we always made fun of him because he was a dallas fan and all of us were chicago bears fans oh yeah is that true that's funny so we are sh- i'm short the cowboys you are short the cowboys i'm short okay. the cowboys what about you jeff i don't have any opinion <laughs> <laughs> i knew that was gonna be your answer okay so this guy was actually asked a funny question he said have okay. you been able to adjust to the chili doesn't have beans mandate in texas how do you even know is a thing <laughs> he says what's your favorite pizza and maybe a round of a recent quarterly reports on stocks that you've touched on over the past couple of months. 
So first okay. off, yeah, um, I've never heard the chili doesn't have beans. Is that a chili Texas thing? Doesn't have beans is, is a Texas it, thing. Okay. What What's your favorite pizza? What is my favorite pizza? Does hmm. it have pineapples on it? No, it oh, does not have good pineapples. Good lord, thank, thank you. <laughs> no, it probably has a lot of meat on it. People that don't like pi- pineapple on pizzas feel very strongly about it. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, what'd you say, a round of quarterly? Well, what's your favorite pizza? What is my favorite pizza? Yeah. I don't know. I said it probably has a lot of meat on it. I don't know what else. Yeah, pepperoni yeah. for me. Pepperoni, okay. Yeah. And then um, any sort of update on recent qu- quarterly reports of stocks that we've read sure. about or talked so about. Th- there's a lot that are interesting. Um, we've talked about BWX technologies with the missile tubes issue. That's yeah. a very big a issue. A lot of people, people asked about BWX last time we chatted. You should definitely read about that. I don't know the exact price right now, but I was saying it's probably not far from $40 a share. Um, they still have guidance out for the next three to five years, low double-digit earnings um, growth, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, if you look at the stock, I could certainly see, even without any multiple expansion or something in the stock, that you could have 10 to 15% earnings over the, uh, 10 to 15% return in the stock over the next five years or so if they hit that kind of guidance. Yeah. So that's very interesting to see that. Um, that's definitely one that, like I've said before, if people don't know that company, now is the time to really learn a lot about that company, BWX Technologies. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Cool. Um, cool is a stock. Uh, cool is a stock we own. I should point out. Um, yeah. But cool is a stock that definitely people should pay attention to. Um, and it reported earnings. Uh, it's been a little while since it reported earnings, but I would read carefully the press releases for management because they're pretty interesting in terms of. Um, I updated a little bit on the website about what I thought. They did some nice sales of um, certain property there um, for good value, and also just like easements and things like that, where they. Um, Generally, don't I, I thought they got pretty good value for it. We'll see what the company does um, long term, but I would say there was nothing in the last two earnings reports that suggested to me that the land is worth less than I thought it was before. Mm-hmm. And the stock has come down a lot, so that's interesting. And I, I still think that Timberland as an asset um, is likely to perform as well or better than a, a portfolio of stocks and bonds. So I think if you can buy Timberland at a, at a discount to its appraised value, you could do well. Then you could do well. You could do better than you will in like your retirement account or something like that. Um, KLX, that was very recent as of the time we're recording this. Yeah. Um, and that was a really big um, earnings release that they had with guidance. Um, that's an interesting one because it's dropped a lot, um, although it went up a lot after that report. Um, and there are a couple of spinoffs recently that I think would be interesting for people to pay attention to and follow. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, Residio Technologies and Front Door stand out as being things that you should definitely read the most recent um, earnings uh, releases from this company. Uh huh. Cool. Is there anything from you? I mean, that's, you pretty much hit on all the ones that we went over <laughs> okay. on the, on the website and stuff. Next question, which I think a lot of people actually would be probably interested in this one. He asked about your opinion on Facebook and then he sort of gave an analysis behind it. And mm-hmm. then he, um, kind of compared it to Buffett's investment in the Washington Post, maybe like this okay. generation's version of it. So do you have an opinion on Facebook? I agree that it is like this generation's version of the Washington Post. Um, Buffett's given very good descriptions of why he invests in newspaper stocks, talking about them as being bulletin boards. Um, and I agree with that. Um, I remember uh, talking to someone uh, when Facebook went public. And this was someone who didn't, who was working in an area that had to do with stocks and things, but was someone who picked her own stocks. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was very big on this stock and wanted to own it and stuff. And the other people there who knew a lot more about um, stocks and did a lot more analysis said, no, it's way too expensive. Don't buy it and everything. And I said, you know, if you um, 
believe that in five years or whatever that people will be using as much as they use it now and everything, then you should buy this. Uh, I didn't see why the future of it in terms of margins and things should be any worse than uh, a dominant local TV station or a newspaper, like you mentioned there. Um, on the other hand, I did write a blog post talking about it, uh, Facebook and Google, and uh, particularly Facebook and Google. The issue I see with Facebook and Google is they're pretty mature now, and they are almost 100%. Their, their profit, at least, comes from being advertiser-supported media companies. Yeah. So they are exactly like local TV stations and exactly like newspapers. And the problem is, if you look at the last year or so, there have not been more clicks on the internet from Google or uh, more ads served, really, on Facebook. What there's been is increases in prices per click or increases in prices per ad served. It's not like Facebook is growing their audience. Facebook's ads are being priced more, uh, are being priced higher by advertisers. And there's a lot of arguments which I've heard from advertisers of why they do that, because they think that their return on investment is higher this way than it would be in, in other things. Um, so they want to do this instead of radio advertising because they think the ROI is higher on this. But here's the thing. For the last hundred years, spending on corporate communications, on marketing as a percent of GDP has not really changed. Okay, So we've had all these different changes in terms of magazines and newspapers and uh, radio and TV and online, and the Internet's pretty old now. Mm -hmm. And it has not really moved how much companies spend on trying to reach the public. So it's a pie that shifts from one thing to another. So it can go from TV advertising to Facebook advertising, but ultimately it's not something that can get to a huge number. It's something which is a certain percentage of spending that companies make. Now, you can make these arguments that, okay, well, in the future, people won't need to spend on rent. Companies won't need to spend on rent. Instead, they're going to rent further out, okay, and they're going to do a lot of advertising on Facebook and stuff, and that's going to drive people to their restaurants or whatever. Sure, yeah. And that's believable because some companies now... A lot of companies, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, if you add up rent and advertising at a lot of, say, restaurants, mm -hmm. it works out to the same number. So either you have someplace that um, rents something on the edge of town and does a ton of advertising, or rents something right as the sort of right next to the anchor tenant in the mall and does like no advertising. And both approaches get their name out there and, and get people driving traffic. So it's possible. But the issue that I see is I I think you have to be careful with the fact that revenue growth recently has been from pricing increases. And you have to think seriously about what that means. Because advertising is all about the return on investment. There are people who will tell you, okay, well, the audience is on Facebook, so you have to advertise on Facebook. But fundamentally, that's wrong. That's true at a certain price. But if the return on investment is poor, then you would advertise on radio. Sure. Yeah. It's all about the return on the investment and not how many dollars you're spending there. And so I think that they've done a good job of making their ads effective, and it's worked. But in, if you're seeing prices 15% higher this year than last year, you have to ask, are the ads 15% more effective? And that's the question, is that is it more effective? I think a lot of people listening that maybe have advertised on there, that could mm -hmm. be a pretty good question, because I've done both right. as well. We've done radio, and we've done right. Facebook, and radio was 
I don't know the exact number, but multiples more effective yeah. when it came to advertising on there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, you know, it's an interesting question. I can see. Um, but maybe that's not fair, obviously, because finance, who wants to, you know what I'm saying? But. Right. But what I'm saying is the question you have to ask is next year will they be what you want to do? Someone asked about the Excel stuff and what the Excel stuff is that you break down is trying to break down things that are not just the financial statements that people normally look at. Sure. And so if you ask me, how do I value Facebook? One of the first things I ask is, okay, how do we break down what's really making the money here? So no one thinks that the audience is going to be 15% bigger next year than, than this year. Mm-hmm. So if you think that earnings are going to grow 15%, you think that the price per ad that you're serving people is higher. So why is that going to happen? It's sort of like if you were looking at an asset manager and you said, well, I think that their assets under management are going to grow 15% a year because their um, portfolio is going to return 15% a year. That's fine. And if it's 1982, I might believe you. But if it's 1999, I don't. It depends on the valuation of those assets. And here it depends on how good a bargain the ad prices are right now. And so that's a really big question. Now, Facebook and Google both are interesting too because they don't, I've read their 10Ks and I think they're bad 10Ks. And I think they don't break down enough how mature part of their business is and how successful another part of their business, which is not the namesake in either case, uh, is so like in Google's case, they're very. Uh, I think they add to confusion by not breaking out things that are different between Google and YouTube. And if they did, I think people might be surprised at how. The the, the truth is that in the time that I've been investing, Google's moat has shrunk. Google the product, mm-hmm. their moat has shrunk incredibly. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So they've had all sorts of success with Android and with YouTube and things like that. But if you had asked me what the moat was of Google, the search engine, I would have said it was a lot wider not that long ago than it is today. Now, they've gone out and they've bought other things and they've had success with them. But it's a question about what will happen in the future that way. So, like, with Google, you know, a lot of that is going to be advertising that's done directly on Amazon. Because people people who are interested in shopping will start at Amazon instead of starting at Google like they once did. So, that's a question that you have to have. And then the bigger issue for me is I don't use these products. So I've never used Facebook and I never will use Facebook. And so that's a big question Sure, about, you know, about, about that. Now, I know some people, especially uh, older people, who Facebook is a huge thing for and who I couldn't imagine their lives without it. Yeah. Right. But I also know a lot of younger people who don't use Facebook much at all. More on Instagram, I would say. Yeah, which is Facebook. So, you know, that, but is not much in terms of disclosures. I don't think the disclosures either by the company Alphabet or by Facebook are particularly good about breaking down what's happening there. Mm-hmm, they sure. give some information about mobile. They often are giving you data that's a mix of the two parts of the business, Facebook and Instagram. Um, I don't think they're particularly impressive 10Ks, and I think they're hard to understand um, what's happening there. I, However, I would say the price on the stock, Facebook and Google both, are not that high compared to things. So what I would compare them to is other ad, uh, other companies that are uh, where ads are driving their profits. Mm-hmm. So you take Facebook and you compare it to Omnicom or something. I think I looked recently, Facebook nineteen twenty forward PE something like that, and Omnicom twelve or thirteen forward PE. So there is a difference there. The ad agency is cheaper, but it's not a, a huge difference. And so I could totally imagine that um, the value is not out of line with it. So I could imagine those being good stocks. Um, I, What I wrote about in a blog post, 
was not that these can't be good stocks, but they cannot be growth stocks in the future. And I stand by that part, which is looking at it from today till 10 years from now, these companies cannot grow much. They just can't. That's impossible. Because they're already a very big part of total advertising spending, and advertising spending overall is not going to grow that much. It just does not grow that much. For 100 years, it has not varied by that much of a percent of GDP. And it's not suddenly going to do that. So you can't grow at 20% a year or something anymore. Because if you keep doing that, you're taking share from everyone else to the point that you're as big as the overall market. Five years from now, then, you are the market. And the advertising market doesn't grow that much. So if you grow that fast now, in five years, you're going to be mature and not be able to grow very fast at all. Mm-hmm. You, know? you wrote a, blog, a great blog post about that. Yeah, a very did, long It was post. Google, Facebook, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I said Amazon's completely different. Yeah. And I don't know if people agree with that or whatever, but Amazon's future, whether Amazon's future as a stock is good or bad, because how big you grow is not necessarily that important to success as a stock. Okay, you don't have to grow that much if you buy back a lot of stock, pay dividends, things like that. But Amazon can grow to be a lot bigger than Google and Facebook can ever be. I would They're a huge market that they could address. Mm-hmm. They have nothing in in uh, in grocery. They have nothing in supermarkets, mm-hmm. and, and that's a huge possibility. They have still a very small part of overall retail. Online retail is such a small part of total retail when you compare it to what um, online advertising is to total advertising, online media. Uh, online has penetrated so much more into media than it has into retail. I think you can see that in your life. How do you spend your time in terms of consuming media? How much of it is online? And yet how much of your time is in offline retail of some sort? Sure. I mean, a lot's probably online, I would say. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, how much offline media do you consume? Probably not a lot. Okay. Yeah. But are you ever in a store? Are you ever in a supermarket? Are you ever in a... Yes. Okay. Sometimes. So there's a lot of retail that could still be... I certainly am. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, um, certainly Walmart and Costco and things like that are much stronger competitors with Amazon still to this day mm-hmm. than is some sort of print edition of a paper. Oh, of course. Or some sort of linear TV mm-hmm. or radio or those sorts of things. So the penetration is just nowhere near as much in terms of uh, in terms of retail. Retail is so huge compared to advertising. Advertising is not that big a part of the overall economy. It just is not as big as people think. And um, I don't see it becoming that. Uh, and I see a lot of time that people could spend in things that where there's no ads. So I could see a huge amount of time spent watching Netflix where there's no advertising mm-hmm. or HBO where there's no advertising. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not that I don't think Facebook will be a good stock. I think that's entirely possible. And it could be a value stock, which I think is what that email was really about. But it's when people talk to me about it being a growth stock that I say, well, maybe for three years, maybe for five years, this long-term cannot be a growth stock. These are too big. And um, they already have too much of a share of online. It's just too big uh, to possibly grow at that sort of rate in the future. Have you ever looked at Twitter? I have looked at Twitter. Twitter interests me as a uh, company, as a stock, because it has such a... um, It produces so little in earnings. Mm -hmm. So little. And yet it's such a big part of our culture. Yeah. Right. You got the president tweeting on it. Yeah. And it it's it has such a big uh role there. And yet it has so little monetization of it. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting to me. Now I don't use Twitter. 
again. Not anymore? Uh, no, I don't use it anymore. Um, you know, and that's part of those things. It's part of uh, iPhones. It's part of any of those things is that I use it a lot less than other people do. It's crazy how much Twitter's kind of come back, I would say, the past, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, four years maybe? A little bit. I mean, pretty much when Trump and all those guys were running for president, I would say. He started tweeting a lot, and it's like it like came back from the dead. Yeah. And and yet, it's not something that produces a lot of earnings when you yeah. compare it to other things. I mean, compare it, for instance. Like to Facebook. It's completely sure. different. Yeah. Compare it to Facebook or, or Google. Google. Yeah. But also compare it to old-time things that have to do with advertising of different stuff. Um, there's still a tremendous amount. There's still a tremendous amount of earnings being made by local TV stations and local radio stations that we talked about. So yeah. they're earning a lot of money still. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, and yet, Twitter isn't able to turn into a lot of money that way. Now, part of that can be the way in which people um, interact with your service, and Twitter may have a way that's particularly bad for monetizing. You know, mm-hmm. um, it has a very—I um, don't know. I mean, the the thing about. A lot of things that we're talking about, Facebook and uh, even I mentioned Netflix or something and Amazon, uh, they're trying to drive engagement of a continuous engagement over a very long period of time. And I don't know if Twitter generally for a large part of the uh, public, for a small part of the public, it may be doing this, is driving uh, very long-term engagement with it. And it can be hard to serve up ads in the way that they um, have it set up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's an that's a very interesting question, but you know I remember the early days of the internet and the how low a likelihood a lot of people put on um, the possibility of how much money companies would be able to make off of the different ways that they people engage with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so uh, it's a possibility, but you know, yeah, t- Twitter to this day um, has a much bigger audience and it's able to turn into any sort of earnings. Yeah, it's interesting. Cool. Well, that was the last question um, for the podcast today. If okay. people want to email you, yes. how can they do that again? Gannononinvesting at gmail.com. Gannononinvesting at gmail.com. It will be in the show notes. And okay. if you do want to follow us, it's me, but it's the brand, I guess you could say, <laughs> yeah. um, you can follow me at, at Focused Compound on Twitter. Mm-hmm. If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memos, there's okay. some new updates. And we're going to put out a video of new updates on the website. All right you will see a spot for free members on the website and there's going to be yes. free content on the website. Correct. And you will see a place to enter in your email to get that. And that will also put mm-hmm. you on a list to receive a free memo from Jeff as well. Right. So in the past week. we've talked about, um, you get a free memo each week. If you give us your email address, I would say going forward, you'd want to do that because you also become what we're calling a free member. Yes. And that means you're going to have access to lots of other stuff. And content. More, yeah, yeah, content so, that you'll be able to see. So be expecting a video on that on mm-hmm. the website here soon. Um, and that's at focuscompounding.com. Correct. And other than that, I don't think I have... Do you have anything to add? No. That's the only one is that, you know, I would say in the next week from the time you hear this to uh, go to Focus Compounding and put in your email because that will be free and it will now allow you to have... Uh, more content and we'll have an announcement about that in the next yes. week. And yep. free is good, right? Yeah. You know what else is free? This podcast. This podcast, this podcast yes. is free. But if people want to support us, we don't do any, what do they call it, Patreon or whatever, where they ask people no, to give them, we don't do any of that. Nope. 
All we ask, we call this good faith marketing. Okay. All we ask is just for a rating review on iTunes. That helps spread yes. the word for Jeff and us, myself, mm-hmm. and that um, helps with the podcast. So if you could definitely do that, that will um, help us out a lot, and we definitely will be very grateful for that. Other than that, we have some interesting guests lined up for the podcast. Yeah. I think the past lineup has been pretty strong, and we're looking to keep that going going forward. Mm-hmm. And we will see everybody next week. Jeff, have a, have a good week. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.